You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. This morning's scripture is Matthew 18, 10 through 14, and it's on page 568 of the Bible in the seatbacks in front of you. Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. The words of Jesus. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, more than over the 99 that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning to gather and worship. Thank you, Lord, that you do speak what is true in your word. You Please give us open hearts and minds to receive your truth and help us act upon those revealed truths. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Raleigh. In 1949, Hank Williams Sr. came out with this incredible song called Mind Your Own Business. Check out Verse 1, if the wife and I are fussing, brother, that's all right, because me and that sweet woman's got a license to fight. Why don't you mind your own business? He said, mind your own business, because if you're minding your business, you won't be minding mine. Another verse, if I want a honky-tonk round till two or three, now, brother, that's my headache. Don't you worry about me. Just mind your own business. Mind your own business. If you're minding your own business, you won't be minding mine. You like that song? You ever heard that song? Anybody in your family ever sent the link to that song on YouTube as a hint to what you need to do in your family? I don't know where you're at on the spectrum of minding your own business, whether you're the kind of person who goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I mind my business, and I like people to stay out of mine. Or if you're more on the side of, I'm nosy, man. I'm in everybody's business. <laughs> Wherever you're at on the spectrum, the question for us to consider today is Christians in a church, are we supposed to adopt this Hank Williams Sr. theme in our lives and mind our own business when it comes to other people that are connected here at this church? Meaning, if you're part of Mill Creek, are you expected to mind your own business when somebody else at Mill Creek is in a different situation? Or is there an expectation in a Christian church that you're sharing some business? Thought experiment real quick. Pretend you're a college student. You move towns and you join a church. You're getting connected there. You've been there for a couple months. You're finding yourself around some friends 
and you go to college ministry, and that's encouraging, and you see them at worship service, and that's encouraging, and it's got a good group of college students, and you're, you're feeling at home, and then you notice uh, spring semester, one of the guys, one of the gals, they start dating, and that's fine. That college ministry is a good place to find a spouse, but over the course of time, um, it's after spring break now, you notice they never show up anymore, and they're not even part of Sunday morning worship service. So you're eating somewhere on campus and you see them and you're like, oh yeah, like they used to be here, but now they're not here anymore. If, if they were a part of that church and you're part of that church, should you say something or do you just mind your own business? Second thought experiment, you're at a church uh, like this where you've got some folks um, uh, married, some folks who are single, some folks have kids, some folks are empty nesters. You have folks across the spectrum, and you tend to sit next to this one family that just seems to be a totally fine family. Um, but then you noticed over the course of a few weeks that um, she keeps coming alone and he doesn't show up anymore. And so you wander over there and just innocently ask, hey, where's your sp And tears start welling up, and she says, my spouse moved out and isn't here anymore. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I was expecting. That catches you off guard. Like, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Do you just give him that? I'll pray for you. Just kind of move on? Or do you, like, jump into that situation? You're part of that church. They're part of that church. Do you have any responsibility there? Some people might say, Part of the problem with Christians is they don't mind their own business. Just mind your business, man. Some people think Hank Williams Sr. is right on. If you just would mind your own business, Christians, you wouldn't be minding our business. The, the question for us today is, is there a responsibility when you're part of a church to be involved in one another's lives? Good morning and welcome to Mill Creek. My name is Jeremy Krause, one of the pastors here getting to preach this morning, and if you're familiar with what's going on in our culture. If you're familiar at all with our world, you know there's a lot of conflict going on. Whether it's the regular old school conflict about power or, or, or gossip, that stuff happens. Um, it's been happening for centuries. Or whether it's some of the new conflict that we're especially experiencing in our culture and even has come, and, 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 uh, come home here at Mill Creek regarding politics or masks or vaccines or what is racism and how do you define it and what's the solution? These conflicts have left the elders and I concerned about what's going on in our church and thinking to ourselves, man, we want to give clear teaching on what the Bible has to say about conflict resolution because too many times it's felt like our people are not resolving conflicts biblically. And then despite all of this work to try to go, hey, how do we actually resolve conflicts biblically? The Lord saw fit to just humble myself and show me how many times I'm not resolving conflicts biblically. And so our heart then is to come to God's word and say, God, would you help us? What do we do in a culture like this, in a church season like this, where there are so many reasons to fight even more than normal? It'd just be easy to experience all sorts of conflict. What do we do when we really hurt somebody and we need to go resolve it? Or what happens when we've been really hurt and that person maybe doesn't even know it? 
what do we do when somebody has such strong opinions about stuff and we're trying to figure out how to reconcile with them? Do our Christian brothers and sisters' issues have an impact on us? And are we supposed to take some sort of responsibility for them? Last week, we went to the epicenter chapter. If you're going to talk conflict resolution in the New Testament, then Matthew 18 is at the top of that list. And that's what we're doing for this, in this sermon series, just marching through Matthew 18. And what we saw last week is that you've got to have this crucial attitude if you're going to enter into conflict resolution. And that crucial attitude is humility. Would you say that with me? One, two, three, humility. This is the crucial attitude. You have to go approach it. And today, then, we're going to see the crucial motivator for Christians in conflict, and that's responsibility. Would you say responsibility? One of the pieces that's been helpful for me is to realize through this sermon series, there's nothing inherently sinful about conflict. So if you're here, you're feeling like, oh man, I'm in conflict, and you feel awful about it, I get it. It might keep you up at night, but being in conflict is not in and itself sinful. What is more, conflict's really normal. Turns out, y'all sinners, I'm a sinner. You put a bunch of sinners together and call yourself a local church, you're going to sin against each other and it's going to create conflict. And so if you're experiencing conflict in your marriage or in your family or in a church, that's normal. So don't think you're weird if you're struggling with conflict or if you're here and you're like, whew, I am not in conflict. My advice to you is just wait five minutes. This is going to come. You've been in conflict before, you're going to be in it again, and we need to know how to resolve these things biblically. So conflict isn't sinful, conflict is normal. In fact, if you're here and you've never had any conflict issues, and, and I don't know, I've, I'd love to talk to you after a while because I have no clue how you're doing life in this, in this world. But this morning then, we want to consider the crucial motivator for Christians in conflict. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to Matthew chapter 18. Our first big idea is this. Christians sin when they despise other Christians. Christians sin when they despise other Christians. Actually, before I read verse 10, I have to tell you here at the top, we need to understand that this morning's text is aimed at those who are part of a local church, part of Jesus's community, identify with other Christians, and then they walk away from the faith. And that's very different than a person who says, I'm part of a church like Mill Creek, and then they go to a different church and plug in there for a number of years. So this morning, Jesus is aiming at those who are walking away from the faith. A, 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 a Christian who's part of this church and then jumps to a different church, that's a sermon for another time. Today's sermon, so we're clear, is aimed specifically at people who are part of a church, identify with Jesus's covenant people, and then walk away from it. They walk away from the faith. Now that we have that cleared up, let me show you how Christians sin when they despise other Christians. From the text, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, for us to understand verse 10, we gotta clear up three questions real quick. First, what does despise mean? Well, I think I know what it means, but what does the Bible mean by that word? Second, who are the little ones? My little one? Well, not so little. <laughs> Number three, what in the world is this angels before the face of God 
guardian angel doctrine, what is happening there? We gotta clear up those three things. So real quick, we need to know what despise means. If we, if we used a thesaurus to come up with some ideas of despise, we might think of the word scorn or contempt, but we just don't use those words that frequently in our vocabulary. What is more, we wanna know what the Bible means by this word. So two cross references that were really helpful to understand what the word despise means. Jesus actually uses this very same word in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. So what that tells us is the opposite of despise is love, devotion. Or a synonym, according to Jesus, the way he's using it of despise is hate. So that's the way Jesus is using it. Paul actually uses this exact same word in Romans 2.4. We preach through this verse. Paul use, says this, do not presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience. And it's that word presume that is identical to despise. So if we take the way the Bible uses this word despise contextually, we get the idea that to despise, what Jesus is meaning is functionally hating others by looking down or ignoring them. I was really hoping you'd give me the exact definition of that word. There you go, congratulations, you showed up and we got it. Here's despise, functionally hating others by looking down or ignoring them. So that's the command, don't do that, okay? Don't hate or look down or ignore the little ones. Okay, but question two, who are the little ones? If you have your Bible open, scan up to chapter 18, verse five, who are the little ones? This is that moment at the beginning where we're talking about humility. Jesus has all his, all, his Christians, all these Christians who are following him around. And, and it's like, if you could imagine a big football huddle, all these people, he takes a little six-year-old as it were, and he puts that six-year-old right in the little, right in the middle, a little six-year-old right in the middle. And he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like this little one. You have to be like this child. Now, again, last week, if you were here, you might remember the disciples were all jockeying for the corner office. We want to know what it takes to be on your cabinet, Mr. President. We think you're going to become a geopolitical king immediately, and we want to get on your good side so that we have a place of honor. And Jesus says, y'all don't need to be as worried about where you're going to be on the org chart as you do whether you're going to get in the kingdom. And to get in, you have to be like a little one. You need to be like a child. And this idea then is that we are to acknowledge with a childlike humility that we're vulnerable. And we need Jesus and we don't come to Jesus feeling like we're King Kong, banging our chest. We come to Jesus like a little kid. That's who is in Jesus' church. We are all little ones. So as Jesus is speaking, he's saying this is the attitude we're to have. So little ones are Christians. Contextually, in this section, little ones are Christians. So we could say Christians are not to hate other Christians by ignoring them. Christians are not to hate other Christians by ignoring them. So now we know what despise means. We know what little ones means. What about this last verse when Jesus says, their angels see God's face. 
Now, can I just admit, I got done studying this, and it took me way more time to study this than I wish. But this is a verse where some people base the doctrine of guardian angels on, that some think each of us has a guardian angel that even looks just like you. Why? I know, I know. It's your twin. But that guardian angel rarely is on earth. It's very commonly in heaven. And that guardian angel goes before God the Father and prays on your behalf. Then if you said, how did you draw that conclusion? They would go, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to Matthew 18, 10. I studied this, and I'm, I'm not satisfied with my answer, but there's an important principle here. We've got to make sure that the Bible is our guardrails and that whatever the Bible says, we stick with. And while some may argue for this big old doctrine of guardian angels, I personally believe if Jesus wanted us to think that that's the way it was, he would have just told us real explicitly. Because in my view, you're extrapolating a lot of conclusions based on a sort of obscure verse here in chapter 18, verse 10. So the Bible's got to be our guardrails. Or to say it different, the Bible, when it says something to us, it creates a line. And we want to stay on the line. We don't want to come to a Bible verse and add more that the Bible doesn't say. We certainly don't want to subtract and remove from what the Bible says. And so, with these guardrails in mind, we know from other places in the Bible, Genesis 48, Daniel 10, Revelation 1, that, that angels are part of our world. We know angels are part of our world. So angels are real. This text, Jesus is saying there are angels praying before God the Father. That's the implication, praying before God the Father. So we know from the Bible, angels are real. This one, they're, they're praying before God the Father. We know from 1 Peter 1 that angels actually long to look into some of the ways that we make decisions and how we think about the gospel. So it's like our lives that we're living are sort of on a stage and there's angels in the audience going, man, this is so fascinating to me. Gabriel, look, I know, Michael, this is fantastic. Check it out. So we don't have clear doctrine of all things angels, but we know that there are angels according to the scripture. And so if we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing here with guardian angels, I think we're safest in saying there are angels in heaven who care about Christians. They care. And they are praying, having access to God the Father, we conclude little ones matter to God. Little ones matter to God, or Christians matter to God. And that's what this is saying. Jesus is making the point. Look, look, Christians should never despise other Christians since little ones matter to God. I think that's Jesus' heart of his teaching here. We could say, back to the header, Christians sin when despising other Christians. Now, we might be thinking, okay, well, Jeremy, it sounds like Jesus' teaching is, is really aimed only at those that are within his community, only at those who identify themselves as Christians part of a church. That's who Jesus is speaking to. And I certainly grant that is part of what he's saying, but in verses 12 to 14, he's going to focus us in on where he really wants us, our attention, and we're going to see that really next week is going to be about confronting other Christians. This week is specifically about those who walk away from the faith. Let's move to our second big idea, Christians sin when they despise those who've strayed from the faith. 
when those who've strayed from the faith. Um, Pop quiz real quick. Kids, can you find verse 11 in the text? Can any kid find verse 11 in the text? Trick question. There's no verse 11 in my text. I know there's not one in mine either. It's actually a footnote. And sidebar real quick, whenever something like this comes up, I do just try to take a moment to explain that there are a couple places in the Bible where a verse has been removed. And you might be going, but why does that happen? It, last time we saw it was at the end of Mark chapter 16. There's this section that says the original or the best manuscripts don't have it. You'll also find it in a place like at the end of John 7 and John 8. There's this section that gets removed or we don't preach through it. And the reason is because in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, those weren't there. Meaning some copyist later on added to it. Now, if you need more than that, I'm happy to talk about textual criticism and manuscript evidence, um, but so as not to derail all of this, just know, kids, verse 11's not there because it's not in the best and oldest copies, so we think it was an addition. Now, to the scripture at hand, look at verse 12. Here's what Jesus is focusing us in on. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Here in verse 12 then, Jesus is illustrating his point and Jesus' listeners, original audience, would of course understood this illustration intimately. Now maybe some of you grew up with sheep and so you understand how this thing works. I didn't, but it was actually... uh, Jonathan Drendel, who is explaining to me something uh, you may already know if you've been around Christianity, and that is sheep are really, really dumb. Like, really dumb. Well, that's kind of insulting, Jeremy. How dare you call me dumb? Well, I'm a sheep too, so I'm putting myself in the category as well. We all, whoever calls himself a follower of Christ is now being compared to a sheep, and sheep are really, really dumb. And I get that there are some illustrations in the New Testament that aren't making us sheep. And so it's not that Jesus calls us dumb all the time, but in a way here, Jesus is really focusing in on the foolishness of sheep. If you didn't know, sheep don't have any fangs. Okay, they don't spit poison, they have no claws, no horns. They're not like a bear that's going to be able to defend itself or go get some food. Sheep are, are, are dumb and they just wander away. And, and if, they, if they go away, there's a number of ways they're going to die, but there's no doubt they will die. They can die because the sheep uh, grows wool and the wool will over, uh, over time, it's going to kill them. Or if it's not from all the wool that's growing, um, sheep can die. Uh, because a beast gets them and they're not going to be able to defend themselves. So sheep are like owing a million in, 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 in losing a fight against a predator. Um, if that doesn't kill them, um, sheep, they won't find any food and they'll die because they starve to death or, or, or they're, uh, they don't drink any water or they eat the wrong food and they die or they drink the wrong water and they die. There's just like a million reasons to die. It was uh, uh, Nathan Eberlein, one of our elders, who sent me a video. Maybe you saw this a couple months ago of, of this guy who has sheep on his farm, and the sheep is just bouncing around having a good time. And, and it fell into like a ravine, like the only place you would think sheep just don't get close to the ravine. No, but it fell right in this little canal, and it's just stuck, <laughs> and it's just sitting there. So the sheep's going to die if you leave it in the ravine. So this farmer's so nice, and he goes and he picks that sheep up. And, and now the sheep is like so happy. Now it's bouncing everywhere. Like three seconds later, it's right back where it was. That's sheep. That's us. We, 
We as sheep, this is who we are, and our natural condition is we're going to wander off and leave the flock, and we're going to die. This, says, this then is how we are to relate to others inside the church, our fellow sheep, when they wander off. We are not to despise little ones who wander off. Instead, we should love and care for those who wander off by running after anyone who has strayed. If somebody takes off from the covenant community, from one of Jesus' people, we chase after them. And, and look, this command definitely is speaking to elders, somebody like me, to go after. But it doesn't take anybody in Jesus' community off the hook. And if you're sitting there going, well, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do, bro. Like, that's why we pay you. I don't have to do that. Well, if you're going to use that method of interpretation, well, then you'd have to say, then you don't need to have a humble attitude either. You can just aim that at elders. And you don't have to have any confrontational conversations. Unhooked from that too. And you don't have to forgive anybody. That's the end of Matthew 18. So you can't just willy-nilly decide, ah, oh, this one is only for pastors and leaders. I don't have to do this one. I'll do all the rest. It's just inconsistent. If you're going to consistently understand Matthew 18, then we have to understand, yes, I take responsibility for sheep who have gone astray, but Jesus is putting this responsibility on all of those who call themselves part of his church. Whatever small local church you're a part of, I think Jesus is teaching there is a responsibility mutually for one another. And what is the response for finding one that's gone astray? 13, Jesus says, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99. Look at this awesome picture of rejoicing. The shepherd's like, boom, I found the one who'd strayed. And he's more excited about them than even the 99. And, and, and here, I think, is why Jesus is saying this and why Matthew took all the time to write it down. And it got handed down to us 2,000 years later is because... He wants us to understand how Christians are to treat one another when we've gone astray. I think there's this tendency for us to think a lot, be a lot more proud in our hearts about who we are in a church and to think poorly of people who've gone astray. But if we're honest and humble and, and admit we're sheep too, we're vulnerable too, wouldn't take anything for us to stray too. Then when we see somebody who's straight come back, then we're pumped and we're glad. If we're the one who did stray and come back, man, no shame. We're glad you're back with the fold. We're glad you're safe now. You were vulnerable then. You were going to die, but now you're back in the fold and we're so excited for you. We're rejoicing. Here's how Jesus lands the plane, 14. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Father loves his sheep. He loves and cares for you. The Father loves and cares for me. All of us who are humble enough and vulnerable enough to, to admit we need one another, we are loved and cared for by the Father. And his heart is that we don't perish he doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want me to die. He wants us to stay with the other sheep. If we have the same heart as the Father, if God's heart for his people is 
going to shape our heart for one another, then we would do well to adopt Jesus' sermon in a sentence here. Here's Jesus' sermon in a sentence if you want to write it down. Don't sin by despising those who walk away from the church. Don't sin by despising those who walk away from the church, functionally ignoring and thereby showing basic hate for somebody who wanders away and walks away from the faith. All right, kids, if you're still with me, we've done the heavy theology lifting. There's the scriptural principles. Let's now transition from what the text says to the application. Let's move to application here. First, in application, we must embrace humility. We've been dancing around this, but it directly ties into last week, and we still see it here. You and I are being called little ones again by Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're adopting a little one attitude. That means you and I, simple Christians, likened to sheep that might go astray. And if you're here, be humble enough to admit that you're vulnerable, you're weak. And on your own, you may wander off. And if you wander off, then we have an enemy who wants to destroy you. I know it's not in our text, but we know from other texts, we have an enemy who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he would like nothing else for you to get away from the flock, run far away from Jesus, the true shepherd, so he can come kill you. That's what he would like, the enemy. But let's be little ones who know we are better off together. We're better off staying close to the shepherd and listening to the shepherd, listening as the shepherd tells us what to eat and what to drink and how to stay safe. Let's follow our shepherd. And if you're, man, if you're new to Mill Creek and you're like, man, I'm trying to figure out what y'all are like, our heart, we take the text and we try to understand what it really means and then we're crazy enough to try to do what it says. I mean, we're just trying to understand what Jesus' teaching is, and we're trying to plug that thing into our lives. And we think this is important, and clearly Jesus thought it was important. He, he taught it. We got to realize, just like the disciples had to realize, we're not all that awesome. Now, I don't know what your credentials are. My credentials don't matter. However long you've walked with the faith, none of that's really that material, perceived success, whatever. Truth is, Christian, you and I are both little ones. We are to be humble and acknowledging we're vulnerable. And I'm preaching to myself here too. Elders and staff, we haven't arrived at some special place. And you haven't either. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians, okay? Okay? There's no such thing as special forces sheep. I am Arnold Schwarzenegger sheep. I will be okay by myself. No footnote about that. Let's embrace humility, and acknowledge we need one another. I need you. I need you. And you need one another. Application number two, pursue unity. Pursue unity. This is what happens in a church when you go after the one who's wandered away. It creates a unity. It, it, it shows one another this is important it's loving one another well. You, you pursue unity by going after one another, and you're pursuing unity if the one comes back, rejoicing and celebrating together. 
Such actions build unity in Christ's church. And, and look at the unity the church gets to celebrate if the 99 are reunited to the one. So does our, excuse me, does our heart want unity the way God the Father wants unity? I mean, he's sitting back going, I hope that one comes back and then we're going to celebrate. Jesus the Good Shepherd is wanting to carry that one all the way back. Truth is, I think whether that one sheep is willing to admit it or not, they really do want to live. They don't want to die. So long term, they want to be reunited as well. And that is showing unity to the body when there's shared desire we would be one body the way Jesus wants us to be. So embrace humility, pursue unity, final application. And this is the main application of this text. Here is the biggie, the primary, Jesus' main point. Take responsibility for one another. Take responsibility for one another. If we're honest, here's where we come. Face to face, with a big problem in American Christianity. I think too many of us have bought into Hank Williams Sr.'s philosophy of church than we have a biblical philosophy of church. Too many decide, man, we don't really need to be worried about one another, and frankly, I hope you don't worry about me, because if I decide to do my thing, let me do my thing, and I'm gonna let you do your thing, man. You do you, I do me. Stay out my business. But at the end of it all, if we do that, we ignore Jesus' teaching. And we're rejecting our responsibility. But, but here, Jesus is calling the church to take responsibility for one another. But, but maybe you're thinking, whoa, 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 pastor. It's not loving or kind to get into somebody else's business. It's not loving or kind to get in somebody else's business. Oh, it's not loving and kind to get in somebody else's business. Okay, maybe if it's somebody outside the church, I suppose there are some principles there. But if, but if you are part of a Mill Creek Community Church and somebody else is part of Mill Creek Community Church and they wander off and you're sitting here going, yeah, that's not kind to get in their business. I shouldn't be in their business. It's not loving. I would just ask, who says? Who says it's not loving? How did you decide that wasn't loving? Because in the text it says, the disciples are to get into the sheep's business if they wander off. That's what our text says. It doesn't say, actually, let the sheep go, let them learn the hard way. Maybe that sheep will finally rescue itself. Maybe it'll wander back on its own, because you don't want to be unloving, of course. But let me calm down a moment. Let me try to address this more specifically. This here's where I think this breakdown happens in our heart. If, if you're here and you're thinking, man, if I take responsibility for somebody else within this church... That's a bad idea. Jeremy, my discernment gift, it is going all sorts of haywire because I think it's a bad idea to take responsibility for somebody else who's wandered away from the faith. Then, then let me ask you why. And, and, and what I think usually happens is this idea of love. Man, that just doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel loving to have to sit down and have that hard conversation. And what are they going to say? They're not going to feel very loved. And in fact, in broader culture, man, our culture just loves to aim at Christians and go, man, if y'all be more loving, this would be a much better place. Why aren't Christians more loving? Why don't you just do what Jesus says? He just says, love others like yourself. I don't want you in my business, so, so, so I'm going to stay out of your business. You stay out of my business. And, and, and the culture just loves to like give us this hard elbow drop that we're not loving to one another. And, and, and we're actually doing the very opposite of what Jesus 
teaches, man, God's love, Jesus' love. The Bible says don't judge. Christians, you need to be more loving. But what's smuggled into that argument is a non-biblical definition of love. Man, I think this is so helpful if you're sort of confused by this battle out there for ideas. If the world says just love one another, the question to ask is, what is love? Because what Jesus is calling love, our culture may go, ooh, I don't like that. And so, yeah, teach, teach, teach about love when Jesus, when Jesus talks about love. Preach on those texts, but ignore 10 to 14. I don't like that one. From my view, what the culture says is loving has nothing to do with biblical love. Here's what I hear culture saying. This is how I think our culture defines love. Would you please just tell me that I'm okay? Just tell me that I'm okay. That feels loving. Or would you just tell me that whatever I feel like doing is okay to do? That's what I want the church to tell me. That's what I want a pastor to tell me. Just whatever I feel like doing is okay. Would you just please say nice things about me and love me? Don't make me uncomfortable. And please don't call me to do what the Bible says. That doesn't feel loving. But that's not what Jesus is saying in our text. And let's be honest, okay? If we're using our culture's definition of love, then based on the culture, Jesus would be unloving in our text, which to me is the real kicker. If you follow our culture's attitude and decide, yeah, I'm not going to get into another Christian's business because I really want to love them. So uh, because I want to love them according to our culture's definition, I'm not going to press into their lives. What you would be doing is the very sin Jesus is telling us not to do. You get that? It'd be upside down. In the name of love, you would say, I'm going to ignore my Christian brother who's walked away from the faith because I don't want them to think I hate them. And what Jesus is saying is, you are hating them if you do that. Here's what I'm wanting to help put in your pocket. Instead of adopting a secularized version of love and then importing it into our text, allow the Bible to define what love really is and then allow the biblical definition of love to inform how you think about loving one another. At least according to Jesus in this story, biblical love is taking responsibility for those who identified as a Christian who were in a church and then walked away from the faith. And biblical love means taking responsibility, humbly pursuing unity by going and having a conversation with them. Genuine love takes the initiative to have the hard conversation, to go the extra mile, to say that thing that, man, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to say it. Even if the person who hears you doesn't feel it as love, even if they accuse you of you're creating conflict and you're being hateful, if you do what Christ has called you to do, you're actually honoring and obeying him. And look, that means in our thought experiments, you would say something to this couple who've all of a sudden unplugged from the church. Or, or in this situation, if, if a spouse has left another spouse, man, you lean in and of course you can call or text me and I want to get involved too, but it's not just subcontracting it off. Like all of us want to be a part of this. And while those are extreme examples, chances are it's probably more something just like a slow fade because this is the normal way it happens, it seems to me. Just generally speaking, you find yourself at a church with some people 
And, 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 and a worship service like this isn't the only place that a person can be unplugged from, but it is one way that you might notice, yeah, I always sat next to them, and now they're not here anymore. And I wonder where they went. You notice somebody, oh, man, they, like, I really appreciated seeing them, but I, I don't know if they're at the church. And then, and so what do you do? What, what our text is saying is take some responsibility. And they might not listen to you, and they might get mad at you, and they, they might even hate you for it. And we're going to get more into that next week. But for now, what we see is that we are to have an attitude of humility, pursue unity, and take responsibility for one another. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, I just don't know that I can. Like, like how am I supposed to do that? Well, it points us to Jesus. I mean, this is what Jesus did. Like, Jesus, he embraced humility, and he pursued unity by taking responsibility for us. Like, he left his home. He put on flesh. You think going across the way and having a hard conversation with somebody's tricky? Try being the son of God and putting a body on and coming down knowing you're going to live perfectly, have the best attitude of humility, you're going to pursue unity, and they're going to kill you for it. But Jesus did that. He pursued unity at the cost of his own life. And so when we look to Jesus and realize, man, this is what he did for you and I then when we feel some rejection or when we feel some difficulty from these tricksy conversations, we can take comfort. Man, we're acting like Jesus. And sometimes we get treated like Jesus, but like he's our king. And he didn't promise that obedience to him would make simple and easy steps, but he did say he'd go with us. And so since Jesus left heaven to come reconcile us, man, we are happy to leave the comfort of our situations to call other people home who are part of the church. Well, at this point, I usually pray and I say the three big ideas in the prayer again, but instead of doing that, I'm going to ask Mr. Craig to come up here, Pastor Craig, and I want to ask him a couple questions because I want to show you, like in real life, an illustration of what this is like so you can see the concrete nature of it. Thanks, Pastor Craig, for coming on up here. I don't know if you had much of a choice, but I am really glad you joined <laughs> us up here. Yeah, I did kind of work for you. <laughs> Question, Craig. Um, you know, I didn't realize that this story of going after the lost sheep uh, is quite personal to you and some of how your life worked growing up and later on. Um, tell us a little bit about how you resonate with this story personally. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk about it. I, I feel like I ought to um, acknowledge first that I do realize that I'm, I tend to be an older person. And so the story that I'm going to tell happened in a different century. <laughs> Um, but really, don't clock out because it's the same story that's happening every day to, and could happen to anybody. So I grew up in the church, and I was part of a high school youth group, and it was, it was a fun youth group. I was involved. Um, but when I got to be a junior in high school, there were things at high school that were going on that were offered, and they were fun, and they took a lot of time, and I just left. I quit youth group. And by the time uh, I left high school, I... In my senior year, I wasn't even going to church at all. But I did have um, some faith, I thought. Um, I believed in God and stuff like that. Um, not a lot of faith, but it was about the same as the people around me after I left high school. It was, um, some people believed in God, some didn't. Nobody talked about it. Faith wasn't part of anybody's life. And then I became uh, friends with people who thought that Christianity itself was an evil thing, and I've, so that's what I believed. Um, and I don't think it was until 
after college that I actually had a Christian conversation with someone. And as it turned out, it was with the woman who would eventually become my wife. I met up with Cindy. And she was a Christian. She had been for two weeks. <laughs> so she was, um, she was really excited about it. And to tell you the truth, I, I thought it was kind of cute. Uh, she was cute, so I just I let the whole Christianity thing go, and, and it just went for years. So looking back on it, I, re, I think there's a, there's a word that I learned this month from a Gospel Coalition podcast. It's called Deconstruction, and it's when you deconstruct your faith. Of all of the youth who are in high school now, when they leave high school, 60% will deconstruct their faith wow. at some point, which means that they, their faith will just fall apart in some way. Some will find their way back to their faith, but not all by any means. Mm-hmm. Now, I make this sound like a youth thing. It, it, it's not just a youth thing. I, I had a good friend in his 40s. He walked away from the faith. So it can happen at any age for me in my youth. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that, and uh, what a sweet story of your wife and uh, Jesus chasing after you. I am curious, do you have any recollection of the church that you were a part of in high school ever following up and saying something to you? No, I don't, I don't recall that happening. I, I look back on it now, and it seems, it didn't seem strange at the time it was a big church, but it seems very odd now. It seems odd that you can just be part of a church and disappear, and nobody seems to care. Well, to the, to the person who still may be struggling with, man, I just feel like I need to stay in my lane. I need to mind my own business. Oh, I should just leave well enough alone and not go say something to a person who's wandered away from the faith. What would, what would you say? Well, the, I think that's a common response. Leaving well enough alone is always my first choice because <laughs> um, it's the easiest thing to do. But you can, and you can justify it. Too. You can say, well, this person is an adult. Um, they're entitled to their own opinions their own decisions, and I think we need to realize that not all of those decisions are actual decisions that people have made. Some people probably sit down with their Bibles and go through Christian doctrine and discard them one by one and deconstruct their faith that way, but I think for many, many it's like me. You just detach from the Christian community for whatever reason, and you drift off to be accepted by some other group. And then, if I could add just one thing, that's, that's just one assumption I think that I make that, that's wrong, that people know what they're doing. Um, the other one is that it's Im- it won't work to go after them, mm. and it never actually works. I, and I think I look back at my story, and I'll bet that nobody who knew me in my 20s or my wife would have ever given any odds at all that I would come back to my faith. It, it certainly didn't look that way, and then when I was 27, God used two seemingly minor incidents that happened within a couple of weeks of each other to just break me in two. Um, and the thing was, it wasn't Cindy's doing, but she had come after me, and she never, ever stopped praying. So I think don't assume that it won't work and never stop praying. Amen. Amen. Well, last question. Uh, you're one of the elders here at Mill Creek. Um, how do you see elders practicing this principle from Matthew 18, 10 to 14? Well, I'm, I'm impressed with the staff here, how hard they work to keep track of who's at church and who isn't. It, seems, it sounds like taking attendance, but really what it is is making sure 
But we know who's new here so that we can welcome them, but also we can know those who disappeared. And the pastors and the elders do, are very careful to try to go after those people who disappeared. Um, I, I'm not sure they're always the most effective people who could be doing that, because they should do that, but so should some of you too, because if people disappear, it means a lot to them mm. if somebody who knew them just calls and says, hey, haven't seen you for a while, what's going on? Mm. At least somebody who is a believer loved them enough to call them. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you for letting us interview you. Let me pray for us for the music team leads us in a couple songs. Lord, thanks for Craig and the way that you uh, drawn him to yourself and the way you never gave up on him and the way you used other Christians to call him to your heart. Lord, I thanks for others in our church who I know their stories. It's the same thing for them. You used other Christians to draw them back. Lord, for anybody on our hearts and minds who has wandered away from the faith, whether we knew them from this church or some other church, would you give us grace and the motivation to take responsibility, take the next step you'd call us to? And I pray, Lord, those who um, have walked away, they would, uh, they would want you, Jesus, and they would plug into some church, if not this one, some church, where they could grow and mature. My God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.